Hello, listeners. This is Dan Kowalski, host of the Alaska Story Project. The motivation and inspiration for this project is to talk with authors, scientists, artists, historians, fisher poets, and a colorful cast of characters who are both knowledgeable and passionate about Alaska. Storytelling has always been key to how we connect as humans, piquing our curiosity and deepening our understanding. Our podcasts are unhurried, so we invite you to settle in and explore with us some of the richness that makes Alaska such a special place. Without further ado, let's begin. So welcome, listeners. I'm pleased to be in a conversation with the author of an award-winning classic titled Alaska Blues. He's also written Bering Sea Blues, Amaretto, more recently the Alaska Cruise Handbook, the Alaska Cruise Explorer. He's also a mapmaker with other publications and projects under his belt. So it's great pleasure to introduce to you author Joe Upton. Oh, thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be here. So one of the reasons why I'm excited about the Alaska Story Project is you wrote it in the introduction or the premise to Alaska Blues, and it's this sense of wanting to share some of the wonder of the North Country. And say more about that. What, why, why do you do your books? Why do you do what you do? Well, when I was a kid, when I was 19 years old, I had this seminal experience, and and it basically changed. Uh, it, it set me on my course for life. I mean, I was 19 years old. I was dying to get a job on a fishing boat, and after a week of uh, walking up and down the docks of Seattle, knocking on boats, this guy hired me, and it was like a classic uh, Alaska fishing boat situation. The the shady skipper, the the grumpy mate, the insurance man's kid as deckhand, and this wonderful crewman uh, who who worked with me, a 65-year-old Norwegian who somehow saw this 19-year-old kid and wanted to share with him all these stories he had heard in 50 years of working up and down the Alaska coast and and that, so what, what was that like, uh, share when you're on wheel watch yeah, in the galley? I, I mean, first of all, he showed me the things I needed to know to be an Alaska fisherman. He showed me the knots to make when we tied up the boat. He showed me how to read the chart, how to, how to read the radar. But mostly on our wheel watches together, I mean, I, I would steer most of most of the evenings and most of the nights because the cooks, cook had bad eyes. The skipper liked to go to bed. He didn't trust the, trust the crew. So I steered and the old gentleman would sit up there with me and his hands would wander over the chart as we steamed down these channels. And he'd tell me stories of uh, being there in the mailboat in the 1930s, you know, picking your way in some channel in a snowstorm before radar when you're using the foghorn to sound off the rocks on either side of the channel. And, and I mean, in that summer, he filled me with Alaska stories. And, and when I got done, all I wanted to do was get back to Alaska in my own boat and eventually make me a writer to share some of what I'd heard. These were wonderful stories. And before that, uh, didn't you have some time on the water down in uh, South America? Uh, yeah, uh, 
after my after after I graduated from high school, I ended up fishing in South America in in northern Chile for fifty dollars a month, you know, <laughs> local wages. But there were some Americans there, and they were teaching the Chileans new methods of fishing. And they hung out at this place called the Hotel Pratt, and these were fishermen from the Northwest. And um, I used to sit there and nurse uh, my little local beer and listen to their stories. And they told stories of Alaska, and they mentioned places that seemed to me mythic in size and, you know, Seymour Narrows and False Pass and Yucatan Rapids. So before I ever went to Alaska, it was this mythic place in my mind. Well, and so reflecting on passage of time, Alaska is different. It's changed in many respects. And then some things are really quite the same as when you first went up there. What does that bring to mind? Well, I mean, you know, what strikes me is, I mean, I've traveled to Alaska every year for the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And what's changed are the towns, you know. But once you get out of town, the wilderness is the same, which, which is a wonderful uh, experience. Uh, I think I describe southeast Alaska as a place where a man and a boat could travel for weeks and never find a town. Yeah, yeah. And... You know, our experience uh, up there, my first time going to Alaska was back in 1973, and we were a group of mountaineers, explorer, young folks, and so we went kayaking, and we kayaked the Inside Passage, and so much the same, I would concur that the wilderness still has this presence, this life force that is just undeniable and quite special. And things have changed. There's there's more uh, boats running around. There's, there's float planes. But it's all within a very understandable way of going forward in modern times. Yeah. And if we were to, if I was to look back at uh, Alaska Blues, again, for those that know the book, it's it's a total classic. One of the things that strikes me about the book is the transition from getting ready for the season and going north. What does that conjure? You know, what do you remember about that? Well, first of all, it's like you've got these small boats. And my first boat was a 32-footer, and you're planning on going north for six or seven months, maybe longer. And where do you put everything? <laughs> you know, Because once you get up there, there's not a lot of places to resupply. But the, the thing that always strikes me, whether I'm flying up or going in a big boat or going in my old little boat, is basically – about 180, 200 miles north of Seattle, the landscape changes so dramatically. The second night of our trip from Seattle would usually find us in a, near a place called Desolation Sound. And you could still faintly hear the engines of the big sawmills to the south. But And then in the morning, you'd 
pass through this place called Yucatan Rapids, and the wilderness would just wrap around you. You wouldn't see a light at night. You'd sometimes pass a whole day without seeing a boat. I mean, it was just the, the you know, the wilderness, which is the same now. Yeah, yeah. Well, so if we were to uh, reflect upon or riff upon our relationship with the wild, with wilderness, what what are some of the things that come to mind? I'd say this powerful feeling of, um, I'm not sure it's aloneness. It's like, I guess, humbleness. I'm always humbled by, uh, you know, the landscape once you get, once you get in the north. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and for me, it was uh, so moving, that first kayak trip, where once you left town, the immersion in wilderness it was all around you. And so the quiet, the quiet from man-made sounds mostly, but the call of the eagle, a splash of a, of a whale, the, you know, the call of a bird, the rustle in the, you know, the forest just behind you. And you weren't sure if it was a large creature that might be of danger or whether it was just a deer. But Immersion into that ended up for all of us on that initial kayak trip being something that moved us in a calming, engaged, grounded way that I never want to lose track of. And I attribute it to engagement with nature, engagement with the wilderness. So, yeah. We would often... On our, you know, aboard the boat, anchor up at night. And before I went to bed, I would go out on deck and look around and just see our anchor light and our cabin lights in our boat and realize that probably the nearest human being might be 30, 40, 50 miles away at times. That was just a humbling feeling. <laughs> well, and then as uh, both Joe and I have been fishermen for, you know, quite some time and there's a there's a saying which I've found to be a true saying. It's a euphemism, I suppose. But the the two best parts of fishing, <laughs> and it's it's boiled down some. But the two best parts are leaving town, and then returning to town. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I I would I would agree to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, which brings up another part that's uh, woven through Alaska blues is. Uh, Community and comrades and close friendships. Uh, what what uh, what do you remember about some of those things? And and currently as well. Well, I mean, in Alaska Blues days, we were very fortunate in that um, we got in with two other boats and we were just very tight. We would anchor up together. We would share all our experiences and all our fishing knowledge, and we were a community. And then we were part of a larger community of, of, you know, fishermen in that area. And they were so welcoming. I mean, we went to this area. We didn't know anybody. This is Port Protection in 1972. And these old guys, Slavonians from Puget Sound who would fished there all their lives, they, they, they took us into the fold. They shared fishing knowledge. And it was, it was a wonderful experience for young fishermen. Yeah, yeah. And similar experience that we had is uh, 
the people were very open, willing to mentor, willing to help, willing to help solve problems, uh, very present in, in your encounters. And also some surprising interactions. It's like we we were going to build a cabin at Point Baker. We bought some land and we were going to build a cabin and – there was a general store there. It was a floating general store and a floating bar. And when the the owner of the bar store heard that I was going to build a cabin, he said, oh, Joe, that's great. I'll start saving newspaper. And I didn't quite get the connection. And then he said, well, you know, for insulation. <laughs> I, I thanked him. I said, Earl, that's great, but I, I'm going to buy some store-bought insulation. There you go. Probably happy you did, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. This, but I mean, one more little anecdote about this store. This was a legendary place in the day. It was a floating bar and general store, and the bartender was the fish buyer. So you could buy, you could sell your fish for bar credit. Very colorful place, close to the fishing grounds. Um, and on a Saturday night, you might want to wear boots because it got crowded and, and seeing as it was floating, water would start to come through the floorboards. And he would say, okay, the first 10 guys who were here, it's time to go now. <laughs> there you go, holding forth. Well, uh, so boots, uh, does everybody wear boots up there? How's that work? Oh, yeah, yeah. got to wear boots. And uh, you know, there, there's there's protocol about wearing boots. You know? <laughs> it's like I, I actually wore black boots, and and that wasn't right. <laughs> Most folks wore these extra toughs, and it's like it's like coming to a logging camp with the wrong color chainsaw. I mean, you might as well get back on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed, it, it's true. It's true. Well, so a, a story along those lines is uh, you know back to the kayak trip seventy three. We were in Ketchikan. That was we we took the ferry up from Seattle, and Ketchikan is where we disembarked. And uh, my experience on the water was largely influenced back in Maine, where uh, I went through Hurricane Island Outward Bound School. And so, very important to all of that was yellow foul weather gear, yellow rain gear. And that's so if you fell overboard out of one of the one of the boats, you could be spotted fairly easily. So when we were Gearing up, uh, it was me that uh, suggested, oh, man, you know, we got to get yellow rain gear. And so most of us did, luckily not all of us. Uh, and uh, so I remember walking after we got our boat set up, walking downtown in, in Ketchikan. And at one point, uh, a young lady kind of stopped us in our tracks and kind of looked at us and said, are you some kind of group? <laughs> well, so uh, back to Alaska Blues as a as a launch pad, running the boat, fishing from when to when. What? How did how did it go? Well, you know, when we started, we would. Le it was a thirty two foot boat, and, and we would leave Seattle in April. We wouldn't get back until if we got back before Halloween. That was a short season. And uh, I was a photographer, still am, and I used to come back from Alaska with at least 100 rolls, 110 rolls of black and white film. And a friend of mine had a dark room, and I'd spend all winter, you know, going through the pictures. And, um, you know, I would keep a journal, and then um, 
some of them, and I show my f- pictures to my friends, and one of my friends said, hey, Joe, you should put this together into a book. And um, that led to Alaska Blues, which, you know, for a first-time writer, it was a big hit. Yeah, uh, it still is for those of us that yeah. dip into it. Uh, kudos on the book. And sometimes, I mean, what, what's I, what's great is that book was written 40 years ago or 35 years ago, and pe- people still still come up to me with these old tattered copies of Alaska Blues for me to sign. It's kind of a thrill. <laughs> well, it should be. So uh, when you remember back then, 32-foot boat, uh, calm seas all the time, lots of fish, how, how'd it go? <laughs> it was a struggle. Small boat. Uh, not not a big fish price. Uh, the weather wasn't really good. You know, the first year we, okay, the first year we got excited. We bought some land, uh, bought an island, fourteen thousand bucks, ten percent down. You know, ten years to pay, and we had big big plans for a cabin. Okay, but then we got down to Seattle and looked at what, what money we had, and the boat needed a new radar and this and that, and pretty soon the cabin went from. Um, 20 by 24 to, I think it was uh, 12 by 16, and uh, that's all we could do. But it was great. Yeah. I can only imagine. So being in the warmth of your cabin and looking out at the boat anchored uh, just just a short ways off, eh? Well, a, a friend of mine told me, he said, look, if you're a commercial fisherman and you can sit in your living room and look out your window and see your boat. You're living your dream. And we were. You know, we had a little harbor. We called it Port Upton. I was a map maker. The cove we were on didn't have a name, so we named it. And we beach log logs. We built ourselves a float, and our little group would hang out there. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, right on. Well, so uh, in the book, I was, uh, I was struck by reading about uh, early spring trolling off noise in Cape Addington. Oh, that was grim, grim, grim. I mean, that's the ocean out there. And, and I mean, we would lay at anchor. And sometimes you'd be at anchor for two, three days for to fish one day. And you, and you could lie in your bed at night and you could hear trees falling in the forest. I mean, it blew so hard. And you know it wouldn't be a, a, a day to fish. And, and then those days that you would get out there I mean, you had to go through this nasty tide rip just to get out in the ocean. I mean, it was it was screwing your courage up really, really tight just to go out there. And I mean, there weren't a lot of fish, and so it was it was it was tough doings in the spring. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, the fisheries today, currently, how how have things changed? Well, the irony is this: it's like. In the 70s when we're fishing, it's like I never had a 25-fish day on Kings. And, uh, I mean, to me, 15 fish would be a great day. You know, I think the biggest day we ever had was 18 fish because, we you know, we were kind of green. And then the hatcheries came along. And then I'd say in the 90s, people were getting 50 Kings a day. And, and, and I mean, if someone had told me in the 70s, that people would get 50 kings a day in the 90s, I, I wouldn't have believed it. And then now it's kind of gone the other way, and, and, the, and the catch volume is um, is tapering off again. So we've seen a lot of change. And the uh, fishing grounds now, if, uh, if you're on a cruise ship and you see little boats out there, what's what's going on there? Oh, those are, those, those are gill netters and trollers, and um, 
you know, you know the in the seventies there weren't any cruise ships. There was just the Alaska State Ferries and tugboats and fishing boats, and you felt like you owned the water. It was a wonderful feeling, and and seeing even a ferry was kind of unusual. Uh-huh. Kind of special too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, when did the uh, cruise ships start to show up and become a uh, a presence in the in the waterways? In the uh, you know, I, I think it was the mid eighties. We we used to start seeing these 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 pretty big ships. And what's great was the early ships were were not very large, and there were some classic early ships. I think there was the I think it was the Prince George was one of the boats, and that we'd see the Princess Marguerite sometimes, and then. And then they just kind of kept getting bigger. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, it's certainly a factor today, especially in the uh, uh, ports of Ketchikan, Juneau, Sitka, Skagway. How would you convey some of the wonder to these passengers? Uh, what what comes to mind? With well, that? I'd say the exciting part about your Alaska cruise I hope it's not, not the towns because what you're there for is to see the country. I mean, for instance, if you go to Ketchikan, you know, get on a float plane and fly back into Misty Fjords because that's something you'll that's something you you remember for the rest of your life. And um, and then if you if you if you go to Juneau, get on a helicopter and fly up on top of the ice cap. I mean, the, these are these are wonderful experiences. Yeah, and. You know, I would add too, particularly in Juneau, where I've got a little more time spent, is that Juneau has fabulous trails. So if you don't feel like uh, going up in a helicopter, which is very incredible, but if you feel like just listening to the forest and being off and off on your own, Juneau has excellent, excellent trails to go out and listen to the quiet, listen to the sound of the creatures and the waterfalls, etc. So full spectrum of things to do by getting yourself to Alaska in many of the different modes. Yeah. No, I mean, um, right. I mean, in, in each town, there's some unique experiences like, like you know, going on what, what you said about Juneau. Hike straight up, uh, I think it's 6th Avenue, Gold you go along that creek um, above town towards the lost thing is the Silver Bow Basin, and you know this is like a half an hour walk from town, and you're in almost total wilderness. And there's an old entrance to a mine, okay? Because there's miles and miles of tunnels back in the hills, which were from the gold mines, and there's wind blowing out of this tunnel, which gives you some idea of how vast the tunnel network is. <laughs> no kidding. Definitely. And that's something that I look forward to doing with the Alaska Story Project is delving deeper, taking a deeper dive into, oh, my goodness, the history, uh, the creatures, fishing, the forest. Uh, So back in the day, and unfortunately, it looks like it's rearing its head again, is quite a controversy over timber harvest or logging. Um, What was it like back in the day? Well... In 1972, when we were – or 73, when we were living in Point Baker, we had a battle against the Forest Service because they wanted to log the north end of Prince of Wales Island. And if someone had told me in 1972 that 15 years later the pulp mill would be closed in Ketchikan because they couldn't get enough wood – I would have laughed. I would have said that's impossible. But 
The pendulum swings both ways. In the 70s, the pendulum was swinging towards too much logging and damage to the salmon habitat. And then um, by mid-80s, the government realized, hey, we we can't log in such a destructive fashion. And then the, the mill closed. And now the pendulum is beginning to swing the other way as as the proposed uh, logging areas are growing again. So we've seen a lot of change. Yeah, a lot of change. And unless you're you're from a logging community, a logging family, many, many are really quite alarmed at uh, the ramifications of throwing out the roadless rule for the Tongass. Uh, and that's something that I'd like to explore in the podcast another time more deeply. Yeah. But I mean... What we saw was tracks of bulldozers driving up stream beds and and stream beds that were cut clear so that the water got much hotter. We we saw evidence of, of real damage to salmon habitat and luckily that those regulations changed. What'll happen in the future? I don't know. Right. Well yeah. we don't know. Yeah. And we also know that there is plenty of reasoned, intelligent, and impassioned folks on all sides of the controversy. The Forest Service in the 70s, they had a wonderful program. I mean, they had these little roadless communities where you could get a piece of land for, I think, 1500 bucks a year, at least least waterfront land. And there was a, you could get 10,000 board feet a year out of the National Forest and um, uh, someone brought in a, lo- a little uh, local small sawmill, so uh, you could—I mean—you could have a homestead on the water for for very cheap, and can't do that anymore. That was very unusual. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the state of Alaska, to early '80s, late '70s was getting a fair amount of pressure from its citizens to open up some land for private. Homes, and so there was a land lottery back early '80s, where my wife and I got in on it, and we got. Uh, that's how we got our place in Alaska is through an Alaska state land lottery, and that enabled us to uh, put together a cabin, and you know, not not all that different from uh, Port Upton. Yep, uh, and it's meant uh, so much to us in our lives and we raised a couple of kids basically with summertime out of the cabin and very 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 lucky and rich uh, time and one of the things that uh, we're so aware of when it's uh, living in the cabin looking out on the water is the the tide that both comes in and out rather remarkably but also the currents that go sweeping by we're just off Wrangell Narrows, which uh, can have currents up to four, four and a half knots sometimes. So big area, Joe. Uh, tell us about tides. Oh, that's that's such a huge impact on the mariner. I mean, it's like most people don't aren't aware of the, especially in the Northwest. You've got sometimes in a six-hour period, you've got the water going up and down. 20 feet, 25 feet. And and what this means is that literally there's places where several cubic miles of water has to squeeze itself between the narrow rocky walls of a channel in, in maybe four or five hours. And what this creates is, is just 
immense currents. And, and what happens is, I mean, there's there's some places where it's only safe to go through at slack water. And and then uh, if you don't, uh, there's whirlpools that can suck down boats. It's 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 uh, there's legendary places in the northwest because of the tides. Keying off of Alaska Blues, uh, going north in the early years, some of the uh, tidal currents down in B.C. Uh, talk about those. Seymour Narrows. What was going on there? Oh, Seymour Narrows. This is my first job in Alaska was 65, and that was only seven years after they blew a rock out of the middle of Seymour Narrows with three million pounds of dynamite. And people... People still talked about what Seymour Narrows was like before the the underwater rock was blasted out. I mean, there were, there was whirlpools that could suck down a, a eighty foot ship. So these this was this was big stuff. Well, and I guess it still is. Oh uh, yeah, Seymour. It, it, it's like okay, okay. I mean, Seymour is a whole saga in itself. I'll give you the nutshell version. They tried to blast this rock. It was just underwater rock. Okay, they tried to blast it by anchoring a barge on it and drilling. But I mean, there was so much, there was so much current that the barge would move around, the drill bits would break, and then a work crew got drowned when the when the their boat flipped over. So they decided to drill. They drilled a tunnel from shore down, I think, nine hundred feet and over. 700 feet and up inside the rock, and they, they laid railroad tracks, and they brought in barge loads of dynamite, <laughs> and finally they blew the rock out of there. But, I mean, you can imagine that this, this, the, the immensity of that project. It was the largest non-nuclear man-made explosion in history. Wow, yeah. Still, I mean, here's the – I mean – I was going through. I used to go through on these big cruise ships, and I'd be up in the I'd be up in the bridge when they went through Seymour, and I remember in one transit through Seymour, and I'm going, boy, it's kind of anxious in the uh, it's kind of anxious in the in the you know in the in the bridge here with the pilots and everything, and I asked, what's going on? He said, well, he says this is um this is a pretty low tide. Which means there's only something like six feet, six or eight feet between our our bottom and and the top of the rock at Seymour. So, oh my! So yeah, wow. yeah. Well, and and uh, I'm recalling a story to the east of Seymour Narrows where you were going, you were a witness, you were going through, and uh, there was a tug and a barge. What happened there? Oh, this is a. Uh, this is a place called Skookumchuck. This is a real another, – another one, you've got a really narrow uh, spot and um, the, the water just rips through there. In fact, kayakers, the standing waves are so big that kayakers used to, to surf on the standing waves. Well, okay, first of all, once a Canadian Coast Guard was doing a practice mission to practice in rough waters and the, and the inflatable flipped – in Skookum Chuck Rapids, and I believe there was a fatality. And then and then one more time, and there's a video of this, uh, a tugboat was pulling a, a, a barge full of logging equipment through the rapids, and they did not wait for slack water, and the barge got ahead of the tug and and pulled sideways on the on the tow line and flipped the tug over. Yeah. And 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 uh, you, you can find it on YouTube, uh, Skookumchuk Rapids, and you can and and you can hear the tugs' engines de- destroying themselves as they were upside down and running out of oil. It was wild. Oh, okay. oh yeah. Oh my goodness. Huh. Well, uh, 
Joe, how do tides work? Um, I think most of us know that the moon plays a role and, you know, for so much water to go out and, and then come back in. How does it work, uh, say, in, in, in Alaska? Here's what's actually happening. Imagine the earth and the water on the earth. And as the moon travels around the earth, it pulls a – its gravity pulls a bulge of water around the earth. And there's a corresponding bulge on the backside, which is smaller. But as this bulge moves around the earth, the tide must rise and fall correspondingly. And as it rises and falls, it creates these currents. And I mean, I mean, especially, and I mean, in 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 Alaska, that the size of the the size of the tides are are just dramatic. Like in in Bristol Bay, where I fished many years, a big tide would be a twenty three foot plus or a twenty two foot plus to a four foot minus, and that's like uh, twenty six feet of of water change in six hours. You just can hardly imagine it. Two high tides in a 24-hour period? Uh, what are these terms, diurnal, semi-diurnal? Uh, you know, basically, you've got a tide change every six hours or slightly slightly less than six hours, I believe. And um, uh, so you've got a high tide, a low tide, and then the second high tide is usually smaller than the first high tide. I believe that's what the diurnal thing means. Not to geek out on terms, yeah. but... Uh, so uh, two highs and two lows yeah. in a 24-hour yeah. period, semi-diurnal, yeah. Yeah. Uh, nocturnal, yeah. diurnal. Diurnal means of the day. Tides can be immensely useful to mariners. For, for instance, if you're leaving Seattle and if you leave on the top of the tide, what that means is the tide is ebbing out of Puget Sound. So the tide will will push you as you leave Puget Sound. And then when you'll, you'll get to like Point Wilson when the tide is low. And then as the tide starts coming in, that tide will push you up into Canadian waters and give you a, a, huge, uh, a huge boost. So that's common amongst mariners yeah. is to pay yeah. attention to yeah. the tides. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, like in Wrangell Narrows, as you said, um, uh, the, the tide split in Wrangell Narrows. So if you leave Petersburg... On uh, the t on the on the the top part of the flood, you head south and you'll get to high tide, and then it'll start to ebb, and it'll f it'll f it'll ebb to the south. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Secrets of the old time mariners <laughs> and kayakers. Kayakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And really and I mean nice. and then tide rips. There's this is when the strong current of a tide runs against the wind. And there's a place in B.C. that's called the Graveyard. And this is the south of Seymour Narrows where the tide ebbs uh, in, a, in, a, in a big flood. It'll, it'll flood six knots, you know, by, uh, by Cape Mudge or even more. And if you get a typical uh, southerly blowing up the straits, it'll, it'll create short, steep waves that have sunk even tugboats. So, yeah, tide rips can be a terrible thing. No, I mean, in Bristol Bay, it's like... A lot of those canneries there, at low tide, there's not any water at the cannery docks. So basically, at high tide, boats are coming back and forth. They're unloading fish, all this stuff going on. Then at low tide, oh, there's no action because, you know, the boats there's are no all, water. They're, 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 there's no water. <laughs> yeah. Well, you had a heck of a story uh, about uh, – 
helping out one of your uh, comrades, uh, towing him south. I think it was 1982, we were running a big fish buying boat, and one of our fishermen broke down at the end of the season. And he asked us to, you know, pull tow him home. So that we were happy to do that. And so we we had about a 200-foot tow line. And then at night, we would pull the tow line in and anchor up. And we'd have dinner together on board. Very congenial. And then the last eve, one of the last evenings of the trip, we were in a place called Georgia Strait. And it was a nasty evening. And, and there was a channel ahead that would get us into sheltered waters. And I wanted to get into sheltered waters because it was going to be a really rough night. But we had to go through Dodd Narrows, and we were late on the tide, which meant that the current had turned against us. But I thought we could risk it just to get into sheltered waters. So I, I called this guy, Ron. I said, Ron, what do you think? And I could tell he was a little leery. He said, well, we can try it if you want. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to pull the tow line in so you're close in behind me. So we pulled the tow line in in close. And as soon as I got in there, I knew it was a mistake because the tide was just running like a bullet. And I had to go to full throttle. And, I mean, I was spinning the steering wheel full over one way and full over another way. And we were just swirling back and forth in the tide. And I looked back and I thought I was going to clean his propeller off on one of the rocks because he was so close to the rocks. But three or four minutes and we were through. And when my heart started beating slow enough so I could talk on the radio, I gave him a shout. I said, um, hey, Ron, um, we made it through, okay. Uh, how'd it go back there? And there's this long pause. And he said, well, I had to steer, you know, to keep us off the rocks. And then, uh, oh, yeah, he says, I, I bit my cigar in half. A, uh, a youthful expression would be, wawa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's a minus tide? Well, I mean, the a minus tide is, oh, at the time of the full moon or the new moon, you have especially large tides, and they call. I mean, they this they there's an arbitrary zero, and so a minus tide is an especially low tide. Uh-huh. And um. Um, and then there's a spring tide where the, 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 the moon aligns with the planets at, to create an, an even lower tide. And um, those can be minus four. I mean, there's places you'll see bottom where you only see it once or twice a year. Right, right. Well, and at, at the cabin, we, yep. uh, we love the minus tides uh, because it's so interesting to yep. get out there. Yeah. And look at where the rocks are and yeah. see what creatures are uh, inhabiting the rocks. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. And it, it's, uh, it's something where if you're trying to get from A to B in a boat, you really have to be cognizant of what's going to happen with the currents. Because like we talked about or like we're talking, for all of that water to go from, call it a minus four, all the way up to a 19-foot high tide. That is so much water coming in and out of whatever basin or channel you've got. It's just astounding. There are little rivers in the channels. Well, I mean, and then it's interesting what you said about critters you can see at low tide because when I was a troller in the 70s, 
when there was really low tides, you'd hear occasionally a native voice on the radio, gumboot tide. And what that meant was chitin, which is a mollusk which adheres to the rocks, was a specialty among the natives, and they're also called gumboots. And they knew that on the really low tides, it was good gumboot picking. Uh, you see, and, and also we had learned that the native women had learned that if you ate a gumboot and had a menthol cigarette at the same time, it relieved the cramps of um, menstruation. Well, there you go. Yeah, this is the secrets of the old-time <laughs> trollers. <laughs> so, again, from Alaska Blues and then also from just being in the country, I know that from your cabin, for example, uh, as you look west and you, look, you hear the, the tide making its river-like sounds, you'll also hear the slap and the breathing of what? Oh, well, right at our cabin at, at Point Baker. Point Baker is where the water makes a right-hand turn and flows around this point and creates eddies that brings herring to the surface. And, I mean, there was always a couple of humpbacks that would hang out there. And literally, you could lay in the in, in the bed in our cabin at night and a still night if the wind wasn't blowing, you could hear the humpbacks breathing. It yeah. was it, it was really something. And then in the harbor, Point Baker is a tiny little harbor. And I remember we weren't there, but locals said the whale came into the tiny harbor one night and was and was rubbing against boats at the dock and uh, kind of giving folks quite a fright before they realized what it was. Uh, well, I, I remember being in Point Baker and a whale came in and spouted right near us because it's a small little channel. It's oh, yeah. a small little yeah. harbor. Yeah. And so they're there. Well, the whales are such a presence in Alaska, and that's something that with the Alaska Story Project, we look forward to taking a deeper dive into as much as we can uh, talk about with experts about the the neighbors that are large mammals with huge brains transiting the area for millennia. And what's remarkable is, I mean, most days in Alaska on the water, you'll see a whale. I mean, I mean, that's what's striking. These are not occasional critters. These are regular, regular critters. And if you're really lucky, you'll see some dramatic behavior. Might You might see... Um, what do you call that circular uh, bubble net? Feeding. You might see bubble net feeding when several whales get together and and they they find a school of herring and they'll circle them slowly, exhaling, so that the bubbles create essentially a curtain which herds the the herring and then these whales will breach, you know, come up through the surface and through the school of herring. It's one of the most dramatic things that you'll ever see. Yeah, yeah, and it it happens fairly regularly. Yeah, and. If you're a visitor to Alaska to find a, an outfit that is a, a good whale-watching guide, it's a life-changing yeah. experience. Yeah. Well, nature in the raw. I mean, we, we were traveling along one time, and here was an orca. It was eating a seal and throwing the pieces in the air and catching them. I mean, it's, there's a lot of drama up there with wildlife. Uh, full spectrum. Full spectrum. Uh, well, you mentioned uh, LeConte 
So there's Leconte Glacier. It's the southernmost calving glacier in North America. And as we go north through uh, Stevens Passage, there's an inlet uh, Endicott Arm with Dawes Glacier. Uh, north of that is uh, Tracy Arm and a glacier back there. Uh, up north around out icy, icy straits is Glacier Bay. Many of these that I just mentioned will calve icebergs. And so how does it go with uh, being a, a mariner and icebergs? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's a problem. And, and the issue is this. An iceberg the size of a pickup truck might only show four or five inches above the surface, and it would be a rounded surface, so you would not see it, and radar wouldn't pick it up. And so especially between Petersburg and Juneau, um, there are icebergs in the, in the shipping lanes, and um, it's a problem. Uh, Dan, you probably remember this, but I was sitting back in Maine, and Dan sends me a picture, uh, e- emails me a picture, and I'm looking at the picture, and I'm going, what is that? And then I realized it's the big fish-buying boat that my wife and I used to run, and it's underwater, and you can just see the name on the flying bridge. It had hit an iceberg right in front of Petersburg. And luckily sank in uh, in shallow water. So icebergs still still sink boats in Alaska. Well, they certainly do. And it's always fascinating to be out fishing where you'd think there are no icebergs out here. And then look and see an iceberg where you don't expect it. And uh, it quickens your attention because they can and yeah. do sink boats. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a... It's a difficulty. It's a problem. It's a challenge for uh, running at night because that's just one more hazard out there for the mariner that yep. can can take you to the bottom. There's other hazards. I mean, first of all, I have to say Dan and I are very experienced. <laughs> On our one of our first video filming expeditions in a place called Forge Terror, we found this iceberg. It was... It was this gorgeous iceberg. It was the biggest one I'd ever seen. It uh, came out of uh, Endicott Arm. It must have been uh, 200 feet long, and it had this arch right in the middle. It was spectacular. And, uh, you know, the arch had a hole through it where you could take a boat through there. So we anchored Dan's fishing boat, and we went there in the little inflatable, and it was this stunning day. It was a bluebird day. There were seals coming up. There was a waterfall. I mean, it was just totally glorious and um we're standing we're we're standing in the inflatable taking pictures and we weren't underneath the arch but we were close okay and then as we're taking pictures there's this rumble that we hear and we feel it through the boat and then dan says to me joe he says the iceberg's talking to us and about five seconds later that thing split in half right on top of the arch and as we watched with our cameras hanging from our necks and our and our jaws down around our chest, the half of it tipped slowly towards us, and the tip just missed the uh, end of our outboard boat, and then the other half rolled away, and uh, the iceberg that had been underwater was now coming up and pushing our but boat back, and finally we had enough sense to start the motor and, and get out of there. And when we had finally caught our breaths, Dan says to me, he says, Joe, he says, 
What's the worst thing that could have happened? We Our cameras would have been wet. We would have been in the water, but we could have, you know, righted uh, the inflatable and paddled back the mile to the big boat. I said, Dan, or not, <laughs> we could have drowned. So, And we're experienced. Because what happens with these glaciers, these icebergs, I mean, you know, seven-eighths of them is underwater. And, and so that section of the iceberg is melting faster than the part that's in the air. And so the center of gravity changes, so it can it can it can flip over without warning, as it did. As it did. Well, and my take on that is that well, we were young then, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, so as we're here in this studio, I think we're both sensing an enormous amount of gratitude for being safe here in this studio, given <laughs> given. Our background yeah. with adventuring, exploring the wilds of Alaska, which includes all of the characters up there. Uh, uh, oh, my goodness. Have we met some characters? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, one of my favorite characters, this is a guy called Captain T, okay? He uh, was one of those entrepreneurs that Alaska seems to breed. And in the 1950s, he ran the Aleutian mailboat carrying mail from Seward out to the Aleutian Islands. And in those days, there was uh, Aleut native communities, which were so remote that they didn't have radio contact with each other. And they didn't, they didn't really know that they had nearby villages. And as he traveled, he noticed that he would find in one village, there'd be all single guys. And then next village, 25 miles away on a different island, it would be all single gals. And they didn't know about each other. So he bought one of the early Polaroid cameras. And whenever he went to a village, he would take pictures of all the singles. And he'd put them on his singles bulletin board with a note like uh, Nina Papaluk, Gambrel Bay. And uh, pretty soon he noticed that as soon as he pulled into some port that the young guys would be launching their rowboats and rowing out to see who was new on the singles bulletin board. It was like uh, kind of an early uh, match.com. <laughs> uh, seeing the situation and coming up with an idea that yeah. might make things better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This, this, this was a very colorful guy. Yeah. Well, what about bears? Uh, well, and you know, in in, um, in southeast, there's um, on the islands mostly uh, black bears on the island, except for Admiralty. There's a lot of brown bears on um, Admiralty, and then there's um, there's brown bears on the mainland. Um, we, uh, I mean, we, around Point Baker, we didn't see many bears. But in um, in Glacier Bay, we would see bears, and in Bristol Bay, we we would see a fair amount of bears. And um, I remember one time in uh, oh Brooks Lodge in Katmai. This is the famous place where you see the bears waiting and waiting in the rapids or the waterfalls to actually uh, take fish out of the air. And um, uh, we were given a little introduction to bear etiquette and bear safety in this little log cabin there. When we arrived and we looked outside, there was a big racket going outside, and here was a mama bear the size of a Volkswagen trying to knock over one of these trash cans that was bolted to the ground, a bear-proof trash can. So 
um, most bear human interactions are safe, but you got to be careful. Yeah. In Southeast Alaska, yeah. they, they call it the ABC yeah. Islands, yeah. Admiralty, Baranoff, yeah. and Chichigoff. And yeah. they all have yeah. brown bear. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the the word that most of us live with is black bears uh, can be very much of a danger, particularly with cubs, uh, but often will run away when startled or when yelled at. Brown bears... Not so much. <laughs> and yeah. brown bears are starting to show up on uh, Mitkoff Island, which oh, is where uh, Petersburg yeah. is. So yeah. they're swimming across the mainland, and it's a concern. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, ex- uh, I, I explained to my son what bear etiquette was that you, if you r- run across a brown bear, you back up slowly. You don't run because that might trigger the uh, chase game reaction. Well, we were walking down this road in uh, Brooks Lodge. And here comes this mama bear, again, the size of a Volkswagen, and she's trailing two cubs, each one the size of a 50-gallon drum. And and my son just <laughs> turned around and ran. I said, <laughs> when we finally got together with him, I said, Matt, you just flunked the bear, cat, bear test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Joe, this, is, this has been a, a good romp uh, for – uh, podcast number one, you know, setting out, heading out up north. And uh, I look forward to several more with you and other people who have amazing stories and depth of knowledge to share with the listener. So, Joe, I would like to thank you for your time and, uh, you know, hats off to what you've accomplished in the world and uh, and keep exploring. And I love the uh, the sense of really having a, a motivation, a strong desire to share the richness, the wonder, some of the details, the history, the fabric, the texture, the pluck of some of these Alaskan characters and the stories that are woven in and out of that great country up north. Well, Dan, it was a pleasure to be here. Plus, there's so much more. I mean, uh, I'm looking forward to digging deeper because uh, there's a lot of great stories out there we can share. You bet. Well, and thank you to our listeners. And uh, if you like this, please uh, talk it up and pass it around, share it in the appropriate ways. And we'll look forward to more. 